Hello and welcome to another episode of Everything's 5x4, a random podcast on Shuffle. I'm your host, Steve. This is episode number 13, We All Miss Our Loved Ones and Gases. So, how this works, if you've somehow missed the previous 12 episodes, is I will discuss five randomly selected topics from a list of 10 for four minutes apiece. I've been doing it more or less weekly, but it's been a couple weeks off. May 7th was a week off where I actually went to see my mom for Mother's Day, which was great. I mentioned that on last week's episode, which was a spinoff, Everything's 2x12, where I just talked for 12 minutes apiece about baseball and soccer. So this episode title, I've been alternating between Peep Show and Futurama references. This is a Futurama Futurama reference. Whoa. Okay. I'm just going to pretend that I did not completely stumble over my words there and keep rolling with it. Anyway, this is from a Futurama episode where the Planet Express crew is under the ocean and Hermes says, I miss my wife and my oxygen. And this is how Professor Farnsworth responds. We all miss our loved ones and gases. Anyway, uh, I also just wanted to, before I get into the random number generator to select the topics, I just want to give a shout out for everyone who is listening. I now have over 100 plays cumulatively. Yeah, I'm a professional podcaster who knows how to pronounce words. Anyway, (laughs) over 100 uh, plays cumulatively which isn't really a high average, obviously, considering the number of episodes I have, but it does show a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, a couple people are listening regularly. Based on location data, I pretty much can guess who most of my listeners are, but I do want to shout out the one random person in Seattle who keeps tuning in. So whoever you are, thank you for that. Anyway, uh, this intro's gone on pretty long, so I'm going to get at it and do the random number generator for topics. So let's see what I am going to be talking about this week. All right, the first topic is number five, which is music. Okay, the next topic is number 10, which is TV. Then we've got Number four, which is movies. And let's see here. We've got number eight, which is shout outs. And last but not least, we have number six, which is other miscellaneous pop culture. So uh, go figure. After doing such sports heavy episodes, there will be no sports this week. So uh, let's get to it, shall we? So for most episodes, I've been sort of cheating. I've been using one-minute intros to introduce four minutes on each topic, so it's really been kind of like five minutes. But this week, I'm going to change that. I'm just going to roll straight into the topics. Four minutes is what it is. So enjoy. All right, so I'm immediately going to make a liar out of myself, but I promise this is going to be the only subject area that I actually introduce and have a minute introduction for. But the album this week that I listened to was Power Slave by Iron Maiden. I just wanted to give some context. 
was released in 1984, the same year as Don't Break the Oath by Merciful Fate, Ride the Lightning by Metallica, After Show No Mercy by Slayer, and Welcome to Hell by Venom. I'm just putting that out there because there was a lot of uh, really sort of extreme metal going on for that time period. And uh, Iron Maiden was kind of in the middle of that, but they were not uh, the most extreme. When you think Iron Maiden, you've got the dueling guitars of Dave Murray and Adrian Smith. Maiden only was around for a couple of years without either of them in the band. Uh, Bruce Dickinson's operatic vocals. Steve Harris on bass and Nico McBain on drums, sort of a metronomic uh, rhythm section. And yeah, this was in the midst of when they were at their peak of their powers. So uh, I'm going to go to the album itself now. Uh, they were a huge, one more thing, they were a huge influence on various subgenres of metal. Euro metal, melodic metal, melodic death metal, I should say, and hair metal alike. I actually first started listening to them in college because of the influence they had on melodic death metal bands like At The Gates and Darkest Hour, so I was kind of working in reverse. Anyway, I'm going to get to the actual album now. All right, so Power Slave by Iron Maiden was their fifth album coming a couple years after Number of the Beast, right after Peace of Mind, just before Somewhere in Time. And yeah, again, this was Maiden's classic lineup, Bruce Dickinson, Adrian Smith, Dave Murray, Steve Harris, and Nico McBain. All right, so the album kind of starts off. I, As I said, my record player is still broken, so this was on vinyl, but I just listened to it on Spotify. <laughs> so not quite kind of going to give you the same sound, but you get the idea. Anyway, uh, so the album starts off on side A with Aces High, which kind of sounds like a generic Iron Maiden song, but, you know, that's not a bad thing. A generic Iron Maiden song is still better than a generic song ripping off Iron Maiden. <laughs> You've got Two Minutes to Midnight, which is another classic um, Maiden song, and, of course, I need to make the cheesy joke, oh, it's Two Minutes to Midnight, but it's a six-minute song. I guess I didn't have to do that, but I did anyway. Um, so you've got a pretty anthemic chorus, a memorable song, it courts controversy a bit because there's lyrics about killing a demon seed. <laughs> um, after that, you've got Los Far Words. It's a more rhythmic groove. Uh, Bruce Dickinson is kind of missed with no vocals in this one being an instrumental. You have almost video game-ish guitars at times, but that was a kind of ahead of its time, really, um, when you think about it. I mean, you could have used this in video game music in the 80s, and people would have been like, yeah, awesome. Um, so, I mean, this album came out in 84, but, you know, that was still before Nintendo was, uh, commonly owned. Anyway, uh, Flash of the Blade was next. Opening riff, just, the riffs keep getting better and better as this album goes on. Uh, it's one of those things made and just seem to get, be getting stronger as the album goes on, which is, which is great from an album. That's what you like. Starts off well and just keeps getting better. Uh, The Duelist is really the last song on Side A and the best song on Side A, um, in my opinion, it has the best riffs. Um, Smith and Murray's guitar heroics and dueling solos are just great. Um, again, the band's sort of at the peak of their powers here. So side B, Back in the Village, uh, Bruce Dickinson's vocals and lyrics about the horrors of war sort of take center stage here. Um, Power Slave, on the other hand, the lyrics are kind of randomness about ancient Egypt, but there's a reason it's one of Iron Maiden's most famous songs. It's got the most memorable riffs and the chorus hook. 
Um, you know, again, both of them are the most memorable on the album. Incredible solo work. Uh, so yeah, again, the lyrics, uh, you take or leave them, but, um, yeah, just a, just a great song, a classic by Iron Maiden and honestly a classic metal song as well. Um, that's going to go on, uh, on your mix, mix tape, mix CD, Spotify playlist, um, whatever, if you're making a, a classic metal songs list. Last but not least, we have Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Uh, so before Pete Wentz became uh, famous as a bass player leading a band, there was Steve Harris, the only permanent and constant member of Iron Maiden. And he wrote this song, which is 13 minutes long and based on a Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem. It's a good song, but let's be honest, it probably could have been 10 or 11 minutes, still had the same effect, maybe even nine minutes. Uh, you know, it drags at time times, but you know it's it's still a good song and uh this is just still a great album that aged well uh it doesn't seem to have that same power it might have in the early 80s but yeah still definitely worth listening to all right so it's been a while since i've done what i originally intended to with the tv segment i was going to watch every episode of futurama which I'm still doing, albeit very slowly. So I actually only watched one this week, which was Frying the Slurm Factory, which is season two, episode four, episode 13 overall, which seems like a weird place to stop, but it actually is the end of the volume one DVD. So for many people like myself who started watching it, after it was off the air, didn't watch on the original run. That was our first experience with it was watching it on DVD, um, you know, before it got syndicated on Comedy Central and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's actually a reasonable place, I guess. Anyway, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that episode, and I am also going to talk about Shameless. Um, so here we go. So frying the Slurm Factory... You've got Slurms McKenzie, the reference to Spuds McKenzie. Uh, Fry and Bender are trying to win a contest to meet him. Um, Spuds McKenzie was a little bit before my time, uh, just when I was little. You know, he was popular, I guess. Anyway, there's actually a long pre-credit scene that relates to the episode, Fry losing his teeth from drinking so much Slurm. And you have live from Omicron Percy I-8, which is a callback to the previous episode uh, in the tagline. Uh, so I think there's some other good Easter eggs in here. You have uh, Zoidberg saying to Fry, I thought you were the robot, which is a nice Easter egg for the future insane in the mainframe episode. There's a bomb in Bender's head, which is a throwback towards the H word. Um, Leela and Farnsworth are playing Scrabble and spell out uh, Futura. <laughs> Anyway, um, there's some good lines in here, too. Uh, I really like when Professor Farnsworth tells the Grunkalunkas, which, you know, of course, are a reference to Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas. Uh, when Farnsworth just deadpans, tell them I hate them. They sing songs. You have references to Soylent Cola. Um, Bender just being a jerk, uh, making Leland Fry pay him for saving them, saying, Your Majesty, I bought the, brought the prisoners. Uh, Slurms, I'm not putting any spoilers in here, but there's a line where Slurms says, I'm so tired of partying, so very tired. And one of the last lines is Farnsworth 
Fry convincing people Farnsworth has lost it by, you know, Farnsworth saying, I'm not your grandpa, you're my uncle from the year 2000. So, all right, so got a minute for Shameless here. Um, yeah, I think a lot of my thoughts on how Shameless ended pretty shamefully, Bill figure, no, terrible pun, uh, are summed up pretty well by Miles McNutt's reviews in the AV Club. Uh, so there have been two seasons after Fiona left. She was really the star of the show, let's be honest. The first after she left was decent. This one was barely worth watching, acted like Frank was the main character. Uh, so many characters made awful decisions, and the writers just seemed to kind of forget or ignore a bunch of things that happened in the previous nine seasons, and it was super frustrating. The one thing I disagree with is I actually liked Carl's development over the years, and I thought that was the one character that, you know, things kind of logically went a different direction for and they kind of improved uh maybe liam i guess you could argue as well anyway if you haven't watched the last season of shameless yeah you can do it just uh expect to be kind of disappointed compared to the rest of the show all right so for movies this week i'm really winging it for the star trek films the star trek the next generation films I actually went through, watched it, took pretty copious notes. This one, I uh, didn't. I decided to just wing it. Uh, my wife and I have been re-watching the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, a little bit slowly because I've been watching a lot of sports, and we've also been watching stuff like Handmaid's Tale. But the upshot is we have watched several of the MCU films, and... Avengers was the one that I wanted to talk about because it stuck out a little bit. It was the first film where it was kind of this first, um, not exactly cast of thousands, but this idea that it was an epic that brought in all these all these main characters. And that's a good thing, but it also kind of suffers for it. And I think you can't really talk about it, and maybe this is a bit unfair in hindsight but you can't really talk about it without talking about Joss Whedon who has been deservedly shunned after be being hit with lots of pretty damning allegations of sexual harassment etc and various forms of misconduct which I actually mentioned in a previous episode this podcast is everything's five by four it was inspired by the everything's five by five phrase from Buffy the Vampire Slayer also a Joss Whedon joint, which, uh, yeah, a lot of those allegations stemmed from his time on Buffy. Anyway, he wrote and directed this. I think, uh, you know, and we're only aging nine years here. It hasn't been that long, right? But I think it does age well in terms of being a popcorn action movie. But we've also seen the heights of Infinity Wars and even Endgame. And what Falcon and the Winter Soldier brought to the small screen. Small screen is kind of an antiquated term because you're talking about... Maybe it's a good term because you're talking about a streaming service that people can watch on their uh, streaming show. I mean, that people can watch on their phones or tablets. But there was just a lot more, I think, um, you know, social commentary and political commentary in those. Uh, there was a more fleshed out cast for Infinity Wars and you know i thought infinity wars might arguably be the best mcu film 
And, you know, that's not to say that there aren't good things about the first Avengers. Uh, you know, there's a lot. It gets bogged down a little bit by a lot of exposition and building the the team narrative and bringing them together. But you've still got Captain America saying, hey, I understood that reference, which deservedly, deservedly became memefied. You have um, Tony saying, we have a Hulk. And you have the mid-cred scene of the Avengers eating shawarma after the battle in New York. But I think at the end of the day, it just, it wasn't really a fully fleshed out vision like the later films were. And again, maybe I'm being a bit harsh with the benefit of hindsight or just because Joss Whedon turned out to be a jerk. But, you know, I think it's still, it's still an enjoyable watch if you put all that other stuff aside. But, you know, you just, yeah, you it's hard to compare it to the later films because there was a lot more interesting things going on, I think. Uh, this one was kind of pulled in so many different directions to try and tie things together. And, uh, yeah, next week I think I'm going to get into more of a film that kind of made me feel ways about stuff. This was just kind of something random I saw recently. So my shout out this week is going to go to someone on the internet, uh, but it's someone who's getting more and more attention. Uh, so some of you may be familiar with the TikTok and Twitter work of Sherman Dilla Thomas. Uh, he was recently profiled in an article in Block Club Chicago. Uh, he brands himself as a Chicago urban historian. He's awesome. He's from uh, Auburn Gresham on the South Side. He's an electrician and an Eastern Illinois University grad. He's also an amateur historian who does his research. And I, I love what he does. You can find him uh, on Twitter at, at sixfiga, F-I-G-G-A underscore Dilla, D-I-L-L-A. He does bite-sized one-minute history TikToks that he puts on Twitter. And they're really well-researched, and he does everything from the origins of Italian beef to various neighborhood histories to aspects of institutionalized racism to just lesser-known Chicagoans. Uh, so there's a little bit of something for everyone there. And, you know, the Black Club Chicago article gets at this. Uh, he is a tall black guy from the South Side with lots of tattoos and dreads. So you've got a lot of people who unfortunately are going to look at that and judge him and, you know, be racist and <laughs> not take him seriously. But I really, I really like what he does because he just makes history really accessible. It's something I've always been interested in history and geography and kind of nerded out to that sort of thing. But there's a lot of people who look at it and just say, oh, this is boring. Why do I need to know these facts or dates? He makes it digestible. I really hope that there's going to be some middle school and high school social studies and history teachers that see what he's doing and use things like that in their classroom. Because it's a way to get a lot of kids to engage with history, to know their history. And particularly somewhere like Chicago, where there's just a great history, um, a great and horrible history. There's obviously you've got redlining. Um, you've got a lot of institutionalized racism. You've got the famous story of when Martin Luther King Jr. visited Chicago and got pelted by rocks 
from uh, from white people. Uh, you know, where it felt to him like he was back in the South, which is pretty shameful. Uh, but you've got a lot of great positive history as well. Uh, you've got a lot of segregation, but you've got a lot of unique character to the neighborhoods. I think, uh, you know, Dilla is just doing a great job with getting all of that out there, the positive, the negative, everything in between. And again, just putting in digestible bite-sized chunks because I think history is really important because I think we've seen over the last few years, just if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, you know, people will fall for anything, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, um, I think it's great what he's doing. Definitely check him out if you have even a passing interest in Chicago and its history. So this episode segment on other random pop culture is again going to look at the intersection between internet culture and offline culture. It kind of was brought about because recently I was in a White Sox Facebook group posting and someone was referring to people as Tony LaRusso stands, which is not really something you want to be. But it was interesting because there was someone who had not heard of the word stan as a verb or description of somebody. And a lot of us were kind of incredulous because over the past decade, it's something that it seems like a term that is so embedded in pop culture that you don't need to be, quote unquote, extremely online to know it. Uh, so what's up with that? Um, I don't feel like I'm that young. I'm almost 40. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's that, that just kind of that kind of struck me as strange, but it got me more thinking back to the origin of the term. There was actually a good article back in 2017 by and I may butcher this writer's name and I apologize for that by Anne Derek uh Gayo Gayat uh Gilat Galat, I, I don't know how you pronounce her name, uh, but it's called When Stan Became a Verb. It was in Outline.com. Uh, I think a lot of people who even have a passing familiarity with hip hop know about the Eminem song Stan from 2000, massive hit. I believe it won a Grammy. It was about a violent, obsessed fan. Um, so, you know, it actually, shortly thereafter, and I haven't listened to this song in a long time, so I didn't realize this, but uh, Nas made the diss track against Jay-Z, Ether, and he used Stan as a pejorative in there. Uh, but according to the Oxford English Dictionary, of all places, they date the use of Stan or Standing back to 2008 when someone on Twitter uh, said, I stand Santa Gold. And, you know, Santa Gold's debut album was pretty hot. But, you know, it's it also made me think again about the term. I hate to use it for myself because it seems like something that should be used as an insult instead of a reclaimed word. You're a stan, as in you're violently obsessed. You're not just rationally liking somebody. Uh, it's just a level of fanaticism that I don't know why you would want to identify with. But I also ran across people online who argued, hey, this is a term that is being retaken 
by people of color, by the LGBT community, and just kind of sort of in a way um, to be self-deprecating and just to move it away from that angry, violent white male origin, um, you know, with the Eminem song. You know, so it's kind of interesting. I think it's just, it's one of those terms that I think has become sort of a catch-all and depends so much on context. I'm never going to say I stand anything, uh, but I also get that there's people who use it in a positive way. Whenever I use it, I'm going to say it towards something negative, but hey, who am I to tell people how to use a word? Uh, well, that particular word, obviously don't use slurs, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's just kind of how uh, the interesting origins and current usage of Stan and Stanning. And that does it for another episode of Everything's 5x4. I want to thank everyone for listening, uh, even if I only get, you know, eight plays per episode or whatever. It's just kind of cool to know someone is listening out there, including random person in Seattle. Uh, thank you for for listening, even though I'm not sure who you are. I think most of the other people listening are, are friends and family. So, but I, I appreciate that. And if you do want to send me an email, that is always appreciated. I might even read it in the um, closer here, no promises. But my email address is everything's five by four. That's everything's no apostrophe five x four at gmail.com. Again, everything's five by four gmail.com everything's no apostrophe five x four gmail.com uh if you like the show if you hated the show uh if you love waiting for it and listening every friday or if you just hate listen for some unknown reason uh definitely send me an email and let me know i uh, should have a new episode for you next week and uh until then thanks again and as I always say, keep everything five by four. Bye.